The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Thanks, Trev. Well, when you are an elder in the church, you get to just add bits and pieces. So we can add Emmanuel and that whole piece and then go, go, with, the, go with the flow. Uh, how is everybody? Nice and cold? Hands up who's cold? Great. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're freezing, I gather. Uh, we have been in this uh, relationship series just for a few weeks, and like Shane said, we'll, we'll finish up today in this passage. Next week, we'll do a panel. Uh, again, we're just asking, like, what does faith look like, depending on where you are uh, on that? And because Shane opened up uh, the series with, like, one of the worst ever dad jokes, I've been trying to provide a joke each week, um, just to try and outdo him, to show that I've been a father for longer than him. Um, so I'm going to go again, and I expect lots of laughter. Okay, are you with me? No one's with me, Shane. So anyway, a father was dying and he knew that he wouldn't get to see his son grow up. And so what he did was he decided to write his son uh, just some, some letters and some things just instructing him about, about life. And one of the things he realized that he would never get to see him do would be to how he would communicate with his future wife. And so what he did was he wrote down a bunch of words with interpretations to help him learn what those words actually mean. Okay, so I'm getting a few little smiles and a few people are like doing these ones, like tap out now, bro. This is going to go really bad. So he wrote this list, this small guide of eight sayings. First one, fine means, I am right, this argument is over, you need to shut up. That's okay. One of the most dangerous statements a wife can make, she means, uh, what she means, <laughs> she's going to think long and hard before deciding when and how you'll pay for that mistake. <laughs> Nothing. Son, this is the calm before the storm. This means something. And you better be on your toes. Note, arguments that begin with nothing usually end with fine. C, number one, fine. Five minutes. If getting dressed, this means half an hour minimum. Don't be mad about this. It's the same definition for when you say that you're going to do some of the chores around the house, so just learn to roll with it. This one also can be followed up with, I have nothing to wear, which means she has nothing new to wear. Get the wallet ready. Five. Thanks. A woman is thanking you. Do not question this. Do not ask anything. Do not faint. Just say you're welcome and let that thing go. Don't try and read into it. Loud sigh. Not actually a word, but rather a nonverbal statement often misunderstood by men. It means she thinks you're an idiot and wonders why she's standing here wasting her time arguing with you about nothing. For nothing, C3. For three, C1, which is fine. Number seven, go ahead. This is a dare. Not permission. Don't fall for it. <laughs> Number eight, don't worry about it. I got it. This is the second most dangerous statement a woman can make. It means she has asked you several times to do something, is now doing it herself. This result in you asking at a later date what's wrong. For this response, see number three, nothing. See the response, number, three, uh, number one, fine. That is my opening gambit. <clears throat> Fletcher, I hope you took notes. Um, 
Marriage is like a garden. It takes time to grow. It takes work to keep it. But for those who do, the harvest is rich. For those who patiently and tenderly care for it, the reward is great. Proverbs 24, 30-34 says, I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is the, the great wise Solomon giving wisdom to say, hey, if you don't tend to something, it will eventually get weeds and grow old and not be strong. And what the Bible wants to tell us about relationships is that they need to be tended to constantly. We need to be on our guard and constantly working and tilling. And so often in our culture, it is said that once you get married, like everything sort of goes downhill. And that's because culturally speaking, we do everything before we get married. And then once we're married, we just settle. And the Bible's like, no, we don't. Once we get married, we actually start working. And it actually can get better and better and better and better and better. And I can attest that this is true. Uh, this week we had our 21st anniversary. Yeah, which is great. And year 2021 was way better than year one. Way better. Way better. And year 22 is going to be even better. And year 23 is going to be even better. And there will be hardships, there will be trials, there will be difficulties. But it will be better. And you can have great relationships and great marriages. So just a little bit of recap. Last week uh, we went through this passage a little bit. And last week we... We said that marriage is designed by God. We see that in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The ekad. Okay, the idea that this is something that God has instituted. This is not a cultural institution. This is not a man-made thing. This is a God thing. God designed us, one man, one woman, to come together, be united, and to be married. It also points to God. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's the idea that even marriage itself is not just for itself. It's actually the idea of husbands and wives is to just show us something about the nature of God. And that can be very challenging because often it means you've got to look at your own relationships and ask, in what way do we reflect the nature of God? Are we reflecting uh, the nature of God? And then lastly, last week, we said that marriage requires God. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians. Uh, I think he's trying to tell us that sin has affected us in many different ways. And I think there are three primary ways that, that we can see sin affecting us. Uh, we've, we've kind of been just using the overarching selfishness. It's the idea of self-bending in on self rather than the self-bending out to each other and to God. But three ways this particularly can happen is that we are depending on who we are in our personality, but we tend to either become selfishly aggressive and try to dominate and domineer and control, or we go to selfish passivity and we avoid stuff and, and we want to avoid, um, or we can go to selfish manipulation. 
And the Bible is telling us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to come into the Christian, into the believer, and help us to not live our lives that way. So we are not climbing for the top. The picture is that we're actually climbing for the bottom, that we're trying to serve one another and come under and lift each other up. And so this passage tells us that that husbands are to submit to Christ and reflect Christ as Christ is the head of the church, and wives are to submit to Christ and reflect Christ as Christ submitted to his father. Now, when we read a passage like this, obviously, we have cultural objections. Um, Throughout history, every culture of every country, of every tribe, tongue, nationality has objections to the Bible. The reason is, is because there is a supreme being who's instructing us how to live. And every culture, every generation, we have objections to that because we live in a time, we live in a place, we have worldviews which are opposed to that. And so we, like every other generation, we have objections. For the ancients... When they were hearing this, it was mostly the men that were objecting to this because they lived in a hierarchical culture where they did not serve women. And the Bible is saying, no, no, you serve your wife, you love your wife, you die for your wife. And they're like, no, we don't. God's like, yes, we do. And now in our more modern times, we we are probably objecting more to the idea of the wife submitting to her husband. Eileen R. Campbell-Reed wrote, a feminist approach to interpreting Ephesians 5:21 to 23 that the role of male headship in the home no longer exists because we no longer have these formal authority structures in society and because we especially do not approve of the slave master relationship so after this what you get is you get submit one to another and then it goes into three categories so then it goes into wives and husbands it goes into children and parents and then it goes into this sort of bond servant is probably the, the better duos uh, word there. Uh, it's the idea of a bond servant and a master. And so her, her reasoning for this is like, well, we don't do the, the bond servant slave master relationship anymore. So then this is probably not, it's a cultural thing. It's probably not relevant to us today. And so I want to say, well, while she's written some great stuff, she's super smart, great scholar. I want to say, yeah, okay. One thing is if we're going to get rid of number one, which is the husband-wife relationship, because we're getting rid of the slave-master relationship, then what are we doing with the child-parent relationship? Because to, to have consistency with her view, you need to get rid of all three, and I don't think anyone agrees that children should not obey their parents. Children should. Also, I think that she misunderstands what the relationship in ancient history, particularly ancient Rome, looked like Because two-thirds nearly of the Roman Empire were actually what we would call slaves. Now, a slave, in our understanding of slavery, is we go straight away to the African-American concept of slavery. And everybody, including the Bible, goes evil and wrong. But when you actually read and you learn about the history of Rome... You could be a banker, you could be a lawyer, you could be a solicitor, you could be a barrister, you could be high up a government official and still under their category of slavery be a slave. That's why often when uh, theologians and scholars are trying to interpret some of the language, what they actually will do is go more to an employee-employer relationship to say it's more like that than it is actual slavery. These people over here who are bankers and merchants and, and working as barristers and doing things in the culture, 
they owe someone money and under the Roman Empire, that was very much called a slave. If you want to know really what it was like, anyone here who has a mortgage, you would be called a slave in the Roman Empire. You owe someone money, you are working your job, and you're not free from owing them money until you have paid it off. So when Paul is speaking here, and he is talking about the bond-servant-master relationship, he's talking more in terms of that relationship. So I'm, I'm in agreement with her that that there is evil, but that is not actually what Paul is speaking about at all. Paul is saying there are people who owe someone money, they need to pay them off. So we cannot make a straight line in terms of the concept of slavery because that is not actually what the Bible is speaking of. That's a whole other topic that we can get to one day because often one objection to Christian faith is that the Bible approves of slavery, of which it does not. You need to do some work to understand what actual ancient slavery looked like, what the Bible does approve, what it doesn't approve, and the Bible is always pushing against it. Another thing, throughout this passage, Paul flips the natural order of things. So he intentionally doesn't go husband first and then wife. He flips it and goes wives, then husbands, children, then parents, bondservant, then masters. He's doing that intentionally to push against the culture. And so I want to say that I think this idea of submission and headship still is in place for us today. The question is, what does it mean? How does it apply? Because that's where it gets really messed up because some people apply this in a way which I think the Bible doesn't. So, just a way of reminder, Paul has already hit on three things. He's told us that that husbands, wives, men, women, children, everybody is equal in value, dignity, and worth. We're all made in the image of God, irrespective of our race, our rank, our class, our culture, our age. All are made in the image of God. And he's calling the church to, in their image bearing, come and be fellow members and unite together in different ways. And so last week we looked at this idea of the marriage relationship. I quoted this from Tim Keller. I think it will come up if we go on the screen. This is what Keller is saying is the picture of the Christian marriage. That within this Christian version of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what is creating and to say, I see who God is making you. And it excites me. And I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking towards his throne And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. That today is still my favorite paragraph on what marriage is out of everything I've read, and I've read a lot of books. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so God is calling us, designing us to be a partnership together, to to love God, to serve God, to be like God. And so... We can look at what it means, but I think sometimes before we say what something does mean, it can often be helpful to say what it doesn't mean. So this idea of headship, submission, what is it not? First of all, it is not unconditional allegiance. Wives, this clearly tells us that if you are a wife here, you are being called to show respect to your husband. But it is not calling you to give him unconditional allegiance. We've said this before. Who does that belong to? God. 
Okay? And so what you want to do with Scripture, when, when we're trying to understand what Scripture says, we want to read the whole breadth of Scripture. And you'll see over and over and over again, there are these instructions given that sometimes look like they're contrasting each other. So, for example, in Acts 5.28, the civil magistrates tell the disciples to stop preaching the gospel. They arrest them. And they are commanded to do not preach the gospel. If you read Acts uh, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 13, Paul tells Christians, you are to obey the magistrates. Okay? So magistrates say, don't preach the gospel. Paul says to the Roman church, hey, when, when the government speak, you need, you need to obey. I've put them there in your charge. And what do they do when they are told to not preach? What do they say? Sorry, we do not give you unconditional like. like You don't have our allegiance. We submit to you to a degree, but there's a degree to which we will not submit to you. And that's as soon as you say something that we can't do, that God tells us that we must do. So Paul and the boys go, love yous, respect yous, unconditional allegiance goes to the Lord, and the Lord has told us to preach the gospel. So we will continue to do so. You can keep arresting us as much as you want. So they disobey, they don't submit, they don't obey, and they actually do the very, very opposite. Why? Because only one person gets unconditional allegiance. That's the Lord. So when, when the Bible is encouraging uh, wives to, to respect and submit to their husbands, that is as unto the Lord. In other words, if a husband is trying to get you to walk away from the Lord, to disobey the Lord, to sin, do something that would harm, any of those categories, he's not saying go and do that thing. God would say, no, 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 I'm number one, they are number two, you now reject that. So let me just pastorally come alongside here for a second. This is why as a church, if a man is abusing a woman, if a husband is abusing his wife, we will deal with that man. And we will call the wife and say, your job is not to stay there out of respect and allegiance to him, because that is not your allegiance. So we as, as elders, we as a church have had to at times to kind of say, come alongside, we will look after you and protect you. And that can be very, very difficult. But a woman should never stay under that. And we would encourage you, please come and tell us so that we can support. So only God gets unconditional allegiance. And then it says here, as to the Lord, this does not mean submit to your husband as though he is the Lord. Sometimes I wish my kids would just call me Lord. And call me master, and they don't. It's like, oh, that'd be so good just once, you know. Kids roll out the red carpet. Welcome, my Lord. Welcome to your home. That would be awesome. I'd love that. But the Bible doesn't say that. What it says is, do this because you're honoring the Lord. Because your allegiance is to God, you're seeking to follow His ways, and He's encouraging us. So, so Colossians 3.18 puts it this way. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So Susan Hunt says this. She says, The true Christian woman is not afraid to place herself in a position of submission. She does not have to grasp. She does not have to control. Her fear dissolves in the light of God's covenant promises to be her God and to live with Him. Submission is simply a demonstration of her confidence in the sovereign power of the Lord God. Submission is a reflection of her redemption. 
God has changed her. God is filling her. So now she wants to come under. Remember? She wants to come under and encourage her husband. Respect her husband. Tell Like, you're doing great. And ladies, uh, I've, just, I've just put it here. If, if you're married to a man, find, find unique ways to say, I'm so proud of you because, and fill in that blank. There have been times when I have not done well in the home and then I've come along and I've tried to do better and as I've done better, my wife just has gone, hey, thank you for that. I see the effort you're putting in. I really appreciate you for doing that. That type of stuff is how we we show honor and we show respect to a husband. It is not the husband as a decision-making boss. So we're not talking about a Victorian model of family authority. So Tim Keller says this, he says, When the Bible says friends are supposed to sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron, how much more the ultimate friendship? If submitting to your husband means your husband makes the decisions, that you never argue, that you never go out at hammer and tongs, there's no completing going on. How does completion work? Completion is hard work, and in times it includes hard words. Uh, Completion is complex. So the idea that, we're both submitting under the Lord and we're trying to help each other become the best versions of, of, of a, a godly man or a godly woman. Sometimes mean we have to speak into each other's lives things that are hard. Carly has had to say some hard things to me. Challenge me. Call me on sin. Ask me like, hey, I haven't seen you opening the book. Why, why, aren't, you, why aren't you reading the Bible as much? Why aren't you praying with us as a family? Why aren't, you, why aren't we doing this as a family? Submission is not just being quiet. It's not just sitting there. That, that's not what it's talking about. Submission is coming under and saying, hey, I want you. I need you. I love it. Lead in this way. Be a godly man. And I can tell you, I'm so grateful for my wife who's challenged me, exhorted me, encouraged me. Hey, you can be better. And I'm here to sharpen you. And it's also not about demanding or domineering or controlling. So again, because sin has corrupted us, we looked at this last week, it leads to us having this battle for who's on top. And so there's this battle for the husband and the wife to, to be in control. And this is a picture of, no, no, we're putting those categories aside. The wife's coming under. Lifting up the husband's dying to himself, laying down his life to come under and lift her up. And so the battle not becomes for the top, the battle actually becomes who's serving the other. And when you get that, it is beautiful. So Matthew Henry says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. So what is it? Well, the word submit is the the Greek word hupotasso. And hupotasso is the voluntary act of placing oneself under. In other words, it's a personal choice. There is nothing in the text that says that husbands should be demanding hupotasso. So again, you come over here. Husbands are told to do what? Love. That's what husbands have got to focus on. That's our job. Wives are not, not told to try and get the husband to, to love and serve. So again, it's this idea of like, well, I want this, give me this. I want this, give me this. And the Bible's saying, no, no, you focus on your thing. 
You focus on your thing and it's voluntary. And when two people do it, it's amazing. So it's a personal choice by the one submitting. It's not enforced, it's not demanded, but it's freely chosen by the one doing it. And no husband has ever come up under the constant criticism of a wife as a better man. No wife has ever come up under the constant criticism of a husband as a better wife. But many a husband, many a wife has become better because of the constant praise and encouragement of the other. And the word head is kefale. This has basically two meanings, authority or source, and ultimately they tend to go together. So source, we looked at this last week, it takes us back to Genesis where, where God creates man and woman and that the man is made, Adam is made, but he's, he's not good. He's, he's insufficient on his own. He needs an azer. And so God makes this azer, this suitable helper, one that would be like him yet distinct from him and together they would be sufficient to image God. Together they would be sufficient to be able to achieve the mission of God. And we looked at the fact that this word azer is constantly used of the Lord over and over and over again. It's not a demeaning term at all. It's not, a, it's not an insufficient term. It's, no, it's, it's this picture of strength and coming together and making each other better. So Psalm 115 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their Azer and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their Azer and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their Azer and their shield. And so what we see with, with Paul in Ephesians and we see with Moses in Genesis is that a man and woman both created in the image of God equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in worth, but created differently. One is not superior to the other. One is not more valuable than the other. One is not subservient to the other. But both are called to use their strengths, their gifts, their calling to work together. So it's not back to back. They drew their swords and... Okay, some of you know that one. It's not out in front competing. It's side by side, shoulder to shoulder and face to face as friends and lovers. And then the other idea is that it's this word authority, which is the idea of there's this responsibility that the husband has. And for those uh, who are not yet husbands or even some of the women in the room, I can tell you this is the probably most scariest passage in all of Scripture for me. That God is holding me responsible for the state of my family. And it's why a lot of men move to passivity. Because we do not want that weight on our shoulders. We hate it. We avoid it. The scriptures tell us that this is the way men are going to often uh, operate. They're often going to be selfishly aggressive, trying to control and manipulate and dominate. Or they're going to go to passivity. And in some ways, our culture is trying to encourage men to get away from being aggression, aggressive, because that's where we were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, to now be passive. And God's saying, young men, do not be passive. Follow Jesus. Get serious about your character. And at some point, if God grants you a wife and children, serve them with your life to the day you die. Don't avoid that. Run towards it because you were made for it. This, the idea of authority 
the idea of sources even in there, right? Because if, if we're reading poetry in a class and we're trying to work out the meaning of that and the author of the poem comes into the class, there is some sense in which they can tell us they have some sort of authority. They know what it means. But what's important, because we hear the word authority, we have cultural lenses for what that means, do we not? And now what I love that Paul does is go, all right, now let me tell you what authority looks like in the kingdom. And I can tell you, it is not top down. So we, we wrestle against the idea of having some sort of authority because we think authority is old mate's in charge, old mate makes the rules, everybody else does what they're told. And the Bible is, no, no, you're responsible, die. Just like Jesus did for the church. The way that Jesus wins the church is not by bossing her around, it's actually by going to a cross and dying. So I've got two things of, I think, of what I think uh, this means. Because as you'll notice, it's quite vague. It doesn't tell us exactly how this looks right. So for one couple, one household, it might look slightly different. But I think it really has two things in mind. Number one, I think it is saying that the husband is responsible to set the spiritual tone of the home. In the words of Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a sense in which, hey, we follow Yahweh. And I'm going to model that. I'm going to lead that. And I'm going to call the rest of our family, my wife, my children, to come and look at the language, right? Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Listen, listen to this language, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor without spot or wrinkle. It's the idea that like, there's a responsibility of like, I'm beautifying this, this woman, this, the church is seen as this woman, and I'm making her whole. And so there is no... There's no evidence at all here of anything of domineering controlling it is self-sacrificial love to say i'm gonna pray i'm gonna read the bible we're gonna go to church we're committed to jesus i'm gonna lead that i'm gonna set the spiritual tone for this house now if you come into our household there are many things that my wife is far better than i at this is not one does the chores one goes and works that's not here it has nothing to do with any of those things. So what happens inside the home and who does what? Each couple works that out. Each family works that out. But the biggest challenge my wife has ever given me is like, why aren't you discipling us? Why aren't you leading us in this? Why aren't we praying? You know? And it's that sense of this is the call to the husband, is to set that spiritual tone. James M. Boyce says this. He says, if the wife standard in marriage is the very high standard of, of her love for and submission to Jesus Christ. The man's standard is to be even higher. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, The clear implication of this text where wives are told to respect their husbands, but husbands are not told to exert their headship, but only told to love. The clear teaching is husbands are not at all entitled to headship unless they are loving their wives sacrificially. It's interesting to note that when I, when I was taught this, I was taught that the passage said, wives submit, husbands lead. And then you read the text and it says, wives submit respect, 
Husbands, love. Love, serve, not lead. That's, my job's not to try and lead. My job's to try and love. And as I love, I win the respect of my wife. I win the respect of my children because they see that, they feel that, they experience that. Husbands, I want to encourage you. Follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul and mind and strength. And then call your family to join you. Say, hon, this is this is direction I feel like God wants us to go. God wants us to love him, to serve him with all of our lives. Will you come on board? And then thirdly, I think Tim Keller helps clarify what he what he sees this to mean. And so I found this really helpful in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. But it's the idea that husbands break the tie. That is, when we've talked it out, when we've prayed, when we've fasted, when we've sought counsel, we've done all of these things that we are told as Christian brothers and sisters to do. Once we've done that and we don't quite now get agreement, he gets to break the tie. But you should do all of that well before you get there. So for example, Carly and I have been married 21 years. It's been like less than on my two hands have I ever had to break the tie and make a call. And so we are seeking to do this together. It's a mutuality. It's, it's like, hey, we're in this thing together. And notice the language of like, he, he talks about like, it's like she's a part of your body. So you don't make decisions that harm yourself. So you're not making any decisions that would harm your wife, not making any decisions that would harm your children. And so we're going together. We're praying together. We're fasting together. We're seeking counsel together. And now we've got between these two options, which one? And we're like, we don't know. One of those decisions was the role I'm currently standing in. We prayed. We fasted. We sought counsel. I asked her, like, hey, if we're going to do this thing, it will have consequences on you. If those, are, if those are negative and you're not up for it, we don't do it. We're in this thing together. And at the end, we, we prayed, we sought, and in the end, we're like, we don't know. Is God calling us to do this? We don't know. And after all that, now Carly's like, break the tie. And I'm with you. And so we signed up. We did five years. And at the end of five years, we checked back in. How are you going? We're still here. So we're doing all right. Um, and so this is year seven for us as a church. We have our birthday coming up in August, our seventh birthday. And we'll check in again in five years. And just so you know, as soon as Carly says, we can't do this, Shane is in charge. That's why his number's on there. And that's why you're sending him text now. We're preparing you for that. Okay, it's just, he didn't realize that. But like, you know, in a couple of years, why? Because this is not a, this is not a husband dominating the wife. This is, we're, we're together, we're a card. And so, but at some point there might be like, okay, what house? We've got these two good houses. Which one? This one's closer to that. And it's like, you get to that sort of stage, you're not fighting it's just a little tip of the hat. Okay, I will trust you because I've watched you walk with the Lord. I've watched you surrender your life to the Lord. I've watched you lay down your life for me. I trust that you are walking with Jesus and you're going to make a decision. And that's the tip. That's the, the breaking of the tie that I think that Paul is encouraging us with.
we're told in one of the Greek histories as the band come up that there was this wife of one of the generals of Cyrus. He's the ruler of Persia. This guy is accused of treachery and was condemned to die. So this wife has done something wrong. We don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us. But it tells us that at first her husband hears about this. He rushes straight to the palace. He barges into Cyrus's throne. Which under their rule, if you walk on a particular part of him, you are automatically killed. And this man, hearing that his wife has been accused of something, he throws himself at the floor before the king. And he cries out, and the way it's written, it says, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. And Cyrus, by uh, all historical counts, was quite a gentle man, quite emotional. And he looked at this and he stopped the men from killing this man. And he said this, he said, love like that must not be spoiled by death. And then he gave the husband and the wife back to each other and let them go free. This is written in historical account. And then the, the rest of the thing that I read, it says, And as they walked away happily, the husband and the wife, the husband said to the wife, Did you notice? Did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave you the pardon? And the wife, the wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. For I only saw the man who was willing to die in my place. And to him, he had my eyes. That is a picture of beautiful marriage. Working together, side by side, face to face, for the glory of God and the joy of one another. Let us pray. Lord, we lift up all of our relationships to you. Father, as we've been acknowledging throughout this series, we are a church with um, men and women that are not married. Uh, we are men and women on the way to being married. We have marriages with kids, marriages without kids. Lord, we've got people who are widows. We've got people who are divorced. And Lord, we, we seek to have a church that would honor you with all of our relationships. And Father, that we would, before we obey anything, we'd obey 521, which is that we submit our lives one to another. Because we've been set free from selfishness. And now we are able to come under one another and lift up each other and be an encouragement and, and a church that would honor and seek to love and serve one another. And God, that we would be a, a people that are countercultural, that we are not seeking to be served, we are seeking to serve. And so, Lord, as we go about our our relationships, for those of us who are married, for those of us who have kids. Lord, would you help us to be husbands that would lay our lives down for our wives. That we would not seek to be served, but to serve. And that the, the health of our children and our, our wives would be our primary. And Lord, for our wives, that you would help Help our wives to, to love and serve their husbands, to, to come under. And Lord, may we have a testimony of 
man, our marriage has been completely changed because we're not trying to see who's serving who. We're actually, we're actually, uh, we're not trying to see who's serving me. We're trying to see who's serving the other. And Holy Spirit, we know that we need your help with that. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, guide us, strengthen us, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, why don't we stand and why don't we sing? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.